In the second chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will, be, how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This indeed is the word of our God. Let's pray. We ask, Father, you grant to us now by your spirit that we rightly see, hear, understand, and apply this your word. We rejoice that Paul, by your providence, took time to write to the church at Philippi and thus to us. Oh Lord, may this word encourage us tonight. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a special love for the book of Philippians. I think I was all of 17 when I was given the task of teaching through the book of Philippians over a two or three day um, camp experience at uh, Pulaski County Baptist Association Camp. And it was my first time to really dig into a whole book of the Bible. And I remember I had my, I didn't have a lot of commentaries, but I had my Vincent's word studies and my Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament Greek. And uh, I just jumped in like I knew what I was doing when I really had no clue in many ways. And it had an impact on me to actually get to study a book front to back on my own, to have the discipline of doing that myself. And uh, I think the notes are probably somewhere if I wanted to dig for them, but I'm also afraid I might die of compound embarrassment once I saw them. That said, Philippians has always been of, of great value to my own life. Let me remind you of the argument to this point. Chapter 1, verse 27, live lives worthy of the gospel. Then verses 27 to 30, in relationship to the pagan world, stand firm, do it without fear, counting suffering as a privilege. In relation to the church, chapter 2, treat each other with humility. This is so important 
He cites the example of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. In verses 12 to 18, the refocus on a call to live a life worthy. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then you will shine in this dark world. And now in verses 19 to 30, two flesh and blood examples of living lives worthy of the gospel. Now it's intriguing if you look a little further ahead. In chapter 3, verse 17, Paul will invite the Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In the ancient world, usually you followed in the footsteps of your father. That is, in the pre-industrial revolution, if your father was a farmer, normally you became a farmer. If a baker, you became a baker. You learned at home by imitation, and this was the norm. Such certainly is not the case today. That said, we still need models. And I will admit, I've been opposed to much of what I've seen in what um, Brian Chappell calls the deadly bees in preaching. And among the deadly bees are the be-like. Be like David, be like Joseph, and so on. There is a danger in that kind of preaching. I think at times it misunderstands the purpose of the lives of the saints. I think it also at times makes the Christian life sound a whole lot more cookbook and manageable than I have ever found it to be. Nobody lives exactly the way and the life each of us is called to live. There are similarities, but I dare say that we could fill the rest of the hour just hearing testimonies from any one of us about how life doesn't look the way you thought it was going to look. Things didn't work out the way you thought they were going to work out. Things happened to you that you never for a moment thought would happen. May I give you a little aside? It's the mercy of God he didn't tell you. You'd have collapsed before you got there. You'd have been broken before it even arrived. I'm always fascinated with the idea, well, if I'd have known this was coming, I'd have been better prepared. No, you wouldn't have. You'd have been a train wreck before it ever happened. The Lord knows what he's doing, even when we're not sure. That said, there is a place in Christian growth to see those who are more mature in the faith and follow their example, not as substitutes for Christ, but examples of following Christ faithfully. Our tendency is we too often let the world tell us what to look for in Christian leaders. And I'm going to betray some things as I say some of this, all right? Just because a fellow is a great leader out in the world does not make him a great leader within the church. The qualifications are not the same. I know some years ago the church growth movement said that we should jettison 
the model of shepherd and pastor and change the imagery to rancher. And the idea being ranchers have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of livestock. And they cannot be concerned at the fact that they lose some of that livestock. A shepherd typically knows his flock. It's a smaller mindset. May I say to you, my friend, the model of rancher is not found anywhere in the text of Scripture. It is an inadequate and inaccurate model. As Christian leaders reflect Christ, we can imitate him. We can learn from him. And I dare say, all of us have done this to some extent. What I have seen as a pastor, a shepherd myself, when I have seen what other men have done, either historically through reading their works and reading about them, or contemporaries whom I'm acquainted with, when I see what they have done, I have often found different elements that I could bring to bear in my own life, my own calling, and my own execution of the office. And I thank God for that. I thank God that there have been men who were willing to invest in me and let me lean on them as leaders. Two elements, I think, stand out here. Selfless leaders leadership and sacrificial leadership first this leadership we see in verses 19 to 24 is a selfless leadership this is the material about Timothy named at the opening of the letter if you recall back in chapter 1 at verse 1 Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus Paul is going to send Timothy. Why send Timothy? Because he can't come himself. He wants to be there, but he cannot. Timothy is to be his eyes and ears. Notice Paul's humble submission to the will of God. He, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Paul makes plans, but he knows the Lord is the one who's actually in charge. And he gives Timothy this commendation. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Literally, what he says is, I have no one of equal soul. There's no one in my life like Timothy. Remember, as Paul looks around the Roman church and had no one to send, remember what he's seeing. Some preach Christ out of, out of rivalry, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now remember, Paul looks at that and he rejoices that Christ is preached, but he also recognizes that their motives are all kinds of wrong. Whether petty jealousy, whether some internecine rivalry and, and a competition in their mind with an apostle, they were hoping that them getting to preach made Paul miserable. Paul's not going to send such petty leadership to a church in need. Ken Hughes put it this way, 
Those whom Paul indicted were the able-bodied men in the church who had no concern about the church at Philippi or about the interests of Christ in the spread of the gospel. In a word, the able-bodied Christian men of Rome were infused with self and selfishness. Evidently, the real men like Luke and Aristarchus were out of town, leaving only young Timothy to be the man. But how he shined. Leaders who aren't concerned so much about their image or a terminology that I find just reprehensible when it's turned on the ministry, building their own brand. But rather they care about Christ being exalted and other believers doing it well. Folks, it is astonishing what a man or a woman can accomplish if they're not worried about getting credit for the accomplishment. And may I encourage you, serve the Lord fully and readily without thought about outcomes or who notices. Just do the work. As long as the Lord notices, it really doesn't matter who else does or doesn't. Timothy is a great model of denying himself for the sake of others. Now, folks, let me point something out about Timothy. He was not a perfect fellow. You can't look at the letters to Timothy without getting some insights, right, about Timothy. Timothy struggled a bit with confidence. He, he struggled a bit with his, even his health. Uh, Paul will encourage him not to be fearful. Um, he will encourage him to do the work that is in, before him. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they learn not to blaspheme. You see it in the letter 2 Timothy. He charges him in chapter 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. How do you do with the ministry that you didn't anticipate but presents itself? How well do you do as a servant of Christ with the ministry of interruption? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our more important tasks as the priest passed by the man who had fallen among thieves, perhaps, reading the Bible, 
When we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. It is a strange fact that Christians frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they're doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They do not want a life that is crossed and balked. But it's part of the discipline of humility that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. Timothy is willing to leave Paul in Rome and go to Philippi. And I have you bear in mind, my friends, that's not a simple journey. There's not a lovely early morning Allegiant flight departing Rome International that lands at Philippi a couple of hours later. This is days, yea, weeks long journeying. Timothy had proven himself. He'd been there from the beginning. He had shown his devotion to Paul. Paul says he is like a son with a father. He has served me in the gospel. So the first thing is selfless, if you will, servant leadership. When you see that, my friend, pay attention to it. Second, sacrificial leadership. Epaphroditus. His commendation is threefold. He's a brother, he's a fellow worker, and he's a fellow soldier. He had been sent by the Philippian church as a messenger and minister to Paul in his need. In fact, we find he had also been very sick near the point of death. Verse 26, he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He was concerned for the Philippian church that they'd be worried about him. He was acting on their behalf, risking his life to make up what was lacking in their service. That is, they could not come, they couldn't all be there to help Paul out. I remind you, my friend, that when you went to prison in Rome, there was not a system in place to feed you and care for you. If you didn't have some friends on the outside, you might find yourself starving to death in prison. Paul had friends that would bring him what he needed. The Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus for that very task. His service, extraordinary word here, Liturgia, the word we get liturgy from. There is something of a connection to worship in this. Now, when we think liturgy, when we think worship, we think about it in a variety of ways. Typically, though, worship, you know, it's kind of like this. Those in formal liturgy often are frustrated because they want less formality and more freedom. 
And those in an informal liturgy want more formality and less freedom. There's kind of a grass is always greener approach. And as you think about worship, in the Old Testament, worship is very much connected to place and plan and very specific actions. The New Testament lacks all of that. All of life is worship. And the gathering of the scattered church is the common expression of the individual worship during the rest of life. D.A. Carson puts it this way. What is remarkable about worship terminology under the new covenant is that it characteristically touches all of life. He goes on to say this. So well-instructed Christians must never suggest that they come together to worship if by this they mean that during the rest of the week they've not been worshiping. And now they gather on Sunday morning at 11 a.m., or in our case, 10.15, primarily to discharge their obligation to worship. For the Christian, worship embraces all of life. But, you reply, does that mean that Christians do not or should not worship when they come together? That's what some have suggested. Christian corporate meetings are not for worship, but primarily for instruction. But that too misses the point. It is not that we worship all week and refuse to worship together. We worship corporately as we have been worshiping individually all week. The corporate worship includes corporate praise, mutual edification, instruction in the word and Christian truth, and celebration of Christ's death in the memorial that he left behind for that purpose. Thus, the sermon is not unworship. It is part of our corporate worship, both a sign of it and a profound incitement to it. Here's what I'm driving at, folks. Paul looks at Epaphroditus, and he sees in him this sacrificial service as in a very real way an act of worship that he living out his life is serving the Lord he is among those living sacrifices Romans 12 1 and 2 who live out of the gospel not strutting self-important peacocks of pretense he cares about people. He cares about the kingdom. And he's willing to spend and be spent for that. My friends, hear this. Follow those who would lay down their lives for the sake of the Lord and his church. When you find leaders who are both selfless and sacrificial, you have something to learn. Pay attention. Follow those who lay down their lives. Find them. Watch for them. Now ultimately, of course, we are to follow Christ. I remind you of the earlier words of Paul in this second chapter at verse 5 down through verse 11. No one has done more in condescension, in selflessness, and in sacrifice than the Lord Jesus Christ. But my friend, it helps us when we can look around 
and see some folks like us who struggle to live the life in the context in which we find ourselves, right? And doing it in the face of trying to pay the bills and dealing with health issues and struggling through family things and all the myriad things that we deal with. To see leaders who live this way help us follow Christ. Trust in Christ. Take note of those who do this. Now tonight, we include this act of worship, the Lord's table. It is a time and place for the remembrance of Christ's living, dying service for us. We cannot think of this without thinking of these things, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My friend, you will never plumb the depths of that in any of your meditation. You will not live long enough to plumb the depths of that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we do tonight as we take the Lord's table is we, we shout, we declare, we show that death till he come. We participate. There is a horizontal element. All of us gathered who are believers, we are in fellowship with Christ and thus fellowship with one another and we gather at the table to eat the meal together, the body, the mystical body of Christ. There is a vertical level to this. We actually, by faith, meet with Jesus. Not that elements change. We are neither transubstantiationists nor consubstantiationists. We believe in the memorial, <coughs> and we believe that the Lord ministers grace to us as we, by faith, do this together. This is the place for confession of sin. This is the place for joy that we're invited to fellowship with him. It is the place, my friend, to remind ourselves, yes, of what he has done, but also, yes, what he continues to do. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, sometimes I think we get the wrong understanding of what that looks like. We've got this image, well, and I still remember preachers doing this when I was younger. I'd, I'd hear them say, well, the devil's up there. You see it in the book of Job, and he's accusing all of us before the Lord. 
And Jesus is there, no saying, Father, I died for them. Father, I died for them. And I thought, well, that's intriguing, but the longer I've studied the Bible, the more I'm convinced that's not the way this works. What is his intercession? It is his presence in heaven. What do I mean by that? Do you grasp that the glorified body of Jesus who walked on earth is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven? And that body, raised and glorified, still bears the marks of the cross, of the scourge, of the spear. We even sing it. Those wounds yet visible above. You remember that line? What is his intercession? It isn't that he has to verbally convince the Father not to strike us dead because God the Father is waiting to strike us dead. That's not the imagery at all. The Father set his love on us. The Son makes it possible for the love of God to come to us and God's justice still be satisfied. It is the presence of a man in heaven that is the intercession. God in the flesh. God man. His presence on behalf of his people is the intercession. And my friend, this is your glorious hope. This is what it means when Paul says we are seated with him in heavenly places. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. As we take the Lord's table tonight, give thanks for this glorious reality and the reality that we look forward to that one day we shall see him as he is. What the theologians call the beatific vision that shall be our transformation and the final act of our salvation. Now I encourage you. Let's take some time to pray. Deacons are going to serve. If you'd go ahead and come up here and join me, I would appreciate that. But my dear family, let me encourage you in this way. It can be hard or seem to be hard for us to take time, make time for extended prayer. And I don't intend for this to go a great deal of time tonight, but I'm going to encourage you in this. Bow your head, bow your heart. Confess your sins. Never be afraid to confess your sins. I said it before, I say it again. The Lord never once had a sharp intake of breath. He has never had a stunned moment when you told him what you've done. He knows. The confession is not to inform on yourself. 
The confession is to say of your sin what he says of it. Yes, Father, I have sinned. And here's how. And then it is to lay hold of this certainty. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's spend some time doing that right now. Father in heaven our sins they are so very many we have either done what you have forbidden or we have failed to do what you have commanded. Lord, we have grumbled. We have muttered under our breath at your providential dealing with us. We've been sour. Lord, we've been selfish. You have put in our path interruptions and we have grumbled oh God forgive us forgive our arrogance forgive our self-righteousness Forgive our selfishness. Oh Lord, our Lord. We confess our sins. And we believe in the promise that we are forgiven for the sake of Christ Jesus. That his death on the cross is enough to atone for our failures and his righteous life enough to satisfy your holy demands. Lord, may we rest in that. And out of that rest, may we then labor selflessly, sacrificially we pray this father 
from the joy of our redemption. In Christ's name. Amen. I thank virtually everybody who's been here for this.